this announcement really quickly. We were originally planning to have your test tomorrow. We're, we're not where we need to be for that. So uh, the test will either be Wednesday or Thursday, and it's really just going to depend on how much information we're able to get through today. So hopefully by the end of class, I can tell you, uh, you know, which, which day it'll be for sure. Um, your memory verse uh, for this week will not be on the test. Okay, so we have the test Wednesday or Thursday. The memory verse is going to be due beginning of class on Friday. Um, remember that you can memorize it in either the KJV or the ESV, but I'm asking you to choose one of those two translations and go with it, all right? Um, and again, the reason for that is not that other translations are necessarily bad or anything. It's just for kind of my sanity, right? Um, it, it's easier for me to keep up with two rather than with, with one. Or, uh, sorry, keep up with two <laughs> rather than with 12. It would be better to keep up with one, but I figured I'd give you some, uh, some stuff. So um, the memory verse is Matthew six thirty three. I'm not going to write it out on the board right now like we did last year. I'm going to give you guys the responsibility to look that up and make sure that you get it. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you as well that tonight for your reading... Uh, you need to do Matthew chapters 21 and 22. So not a lot of reading tonight, but you need to do Matthew 21 and 22 tonight. Okay? Um, we need to jump into stuff and, and, and try to get rolling. So I'm going to open with a word of prayer, and then we will get into it. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you that this Monday morning you brought us back safely here. Uh, I thank you for a weekend where we were able to, to rest up and have a little bit of time away from school, uh, rejuvenate, recharge after the first week. And I pray that you would give these students the energy they need, not only for this class this morning, but for uh, the entire week to, to perform well, well in their schooling. Uh, I do pray, though, that as we open uh, our minds to think about the scriptures this morning, that you would teach us. Uh, that you would give us information and content that makes it easier for us to understand the New Testament as we will get started on the Gospel of Matthew later this week. Uh, I pray that this uh, introductory content would, uh, would really give us a, a good foundation before we jump into the studies of the Gospels themselves. And be with these students as they do their homework reading, uh, open their minds to understand the scriptures, and, and not only to understand it intellectually, but to be changed by it as well. For we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Um, last week, uh, I guess on Thursday, because we had that fire drill on Friday, uh, where I jumped really badly. <laughs> um, but, uh, on, on Thursday of last week, I started to kind of put, uh, this chart up here. We were asking the question, why do we get four gospels? You know, why, why didn't we just get Matthew? Why do we also need Mark, Luke, and John? Why do we wind up with four instead of one? And, um, there's a lot of ways that we can answer that. The way that we're going to answer that for now, though, is that each of these Gospels was written to a unique community that had unique needs. All right? Uh, it was written to a specific church that had specific needs. And we, I think, only really got through talking about Matthew, but we said that Matthew was written to a church of Jewish Christians. Um, whenever I write Christ or Christians on the board, I'm often going to abbreviate it with an X. Uh, some people get kind of up in arms about that, like uh, you've seen before, instead of writing out Christmas, people will do Xmas, and, and sometimes that's kind of an offensive thing to people. 
Uh, I obviously don't mean that in an offensive or like sacrilegious way. In Greek, the word Christ, uh, the first letter of it is an X. Like that kind of C-H-R sound in Greek is, is the letter X. And so instead of taking the time to spell out Christ or Christian on the board, you know, I'm kind of doing shorthand. I'm going to abbreviate stuff. And so that's why uh, I'm going to do uh, Xian or, or, or X for Christ. Uh, it, it's not like I'm Xing Christ out or something like that. It's, it's that that is always been a way to abbreviate that, you know, since, since the earliest days because that's how it's spelled in Greek. So um, this is written to a community of Jewish Christians, and um, the book of Matthew is addressing a really big issue that they're facing. Uh, in the Roman Empire during this time, Judaism is legal, Christianity is illegal. And so these people are tempted to fall back into uh, Jewish customs, Jewish law, to, to walk away from Jesus back into Judaism. So what is the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew? Well, one is to show Jesus is the Messiah. We've been waiting and praying and hoping for this guy. Now that the Messiah has come, don't go back to your old way of life. Uh, stay committed to the Messiah. A second purpose in writing this is we talked briefly on Thursday about how the early church has an issue. You've got um, a group of Jews that become Christians, but you've also got this other group that becomes Christians, and they're called the Gentiles the non-Jews that become Christians. And these two groups have a really hard time getting along. Every, all of the four Gospels have to address this in one way or another. These two groups have a really hard time getting along. The Jews have a tendency to think that they're better than the Gentiles. They have the, the tendency to give in to pride, to feel superior. And so one of the purposes of the Gospel of Matthew is to say Jesus is the Messiah, so stand firm. But a, another purpose is uh, the Gospel of Matthew is very pro-Gentile. It presents a Jesus who is very pro-Gentile. So uh, this is pushing towards church unity, towards love and peace in the church. Uh, the, 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 the Messiah you worship loved the Gentiles and accepted the Gentiles, so you Jewish Christians need to too. And I mentioned a few ways that the Gospel of Matthew does this. We'll explore more of them as we get further into it. Um, but one of the ways that we already highlighted was through the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, how do you spell genealogy? G-E-N-E-A-O-L-O-G-Y. Like that? Yeah, okay, that looks good. Thanks, Chris. Um so one of the ways that, that Matthew makes this argument, this pro-Gentile argument, is through the genealogy where there are four women listed, and what's true of all of the four women? They're all Gentiles. So in Jesus' family tree, in the family tree of the Jewish Messiah, there are Gentiles. A, a second way that we mentioned is none of the Jews recognize that the Messiah has been born, but these Babylonian magic men do. The Magi do. The wise men do. All right? Um, I'll actually just give you three for now. The, the other one that we could talk about is, um, anybody know the last words of the Gospel of Matthew? Probably all of you do. You may just not know it's the last words of Matthew. Uh, it's the Great Commission. In the uttermost parts of the earth? Yeah. 
Right? What does the Great Commission say? The whole thing. That, that's, that's the version in Acts. Anybody know the version in Matthew, Matthew 28, 19, and 20? <laughs> Sophia? Go for it. Yeah, so Jesus sends his disciples into all the what? So the gospel is for all the all the nations. Um, that word for nations is really in Greek, just the word Gentiles, right? And so the Great Commission shows uh, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, it shows that the gospel is for all people, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles too. So uh, the gospel of Matthew is really bookended, beginning with this genealogy, ending with the Great Commission. It's, it's bookended by these very pro-Gentile messages. All right, so the gospel of Matthew has a specific shape. It's going to include certain information and exclude certain information that helps it make this point most powerfully. If, if there's a piece of information that's not really relevant to this, all right, it might be relevant to Mark or it might be relevant to Luke, but if it's not relevant to these purposes, Matthew might exclude it. Okay. Um, the Gospel of Mark is written to a different church with different needs. Um, the Gospel of Mark is almost certainly written to the church in Rome. All right. It's written to the church at Rome, and it's written almost certainly right after their pastor's been killed. Uh, in the mid-60s, uh, you know, um, uh, we're talking about, you know, the first century. So whenever I say the mid-60s, I'm not talking 1860s, 1960s. I'm literally talking 60s, right? Um, in the mid-60s, there's an emperor that comes to power called Nero. And under Nero... Peter and Paul are both put to death. Peter was almost certainly, at that point in history, the pastor of the church at Rome. And so the leader of the church in Rome has just been killed. And these Christians are living in the capital of the empire that is trying to kill them. So how do you think they feel? Probably not great, right? So the, the, uh, the, the Gospel of Mark is written to the church at Rome. And again, it's trying to encourage them to stand firm and be faithful. It's trying to encourage them to continue to bear witness, continue to evangelize and share the good news. And there's another theme that's really present in this gospel that, that is not so present in the other gospels, and it's the, the theme that Peter really stuck okay that theme is present in the other gospels as well uh you guys have read the gospels enough to know that peter is kind of an airhead right like uh what would be an example of peter doing something dumb transfiguration, transfiguration moses and elijah appear and what does he say That's yeah let's build a couple tabernacles one for everybody right okay there's that uh does peter ever do anything else that's just really dumb or where he like starts talking and then immediately he wishes he could put his foot in his mouth. Oh, um, you are Christ, the Son of the Living God. Good job, Peter. Two seconds later, 
hey, by the way, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. No, and Peter says, no, you will not. And what does Jesus say to him? Those are from Matthew. Those are from the Gospel of Matthew. They're going to be repeated in the Gospel of Mark. But you're going to find out some, some other stuff about Peter in the book of Mark that, that really is not great for Peter's, you know, uh, the image that you try to project about yourself, right? It's not great for Peter. Now, what's really interesting about that? Who is their pastor? Peter. Peter. All right, so is Mark being subversive? Is he saying, hey, that pastor that you had that just, you know, was put to death for faith in, in the gospel, he stunk. Is that what he's doing? Probably not. Probably not. What he wants to show is that there's forgiveness for cowardice. In the Gospels, Peter acts like an idiot, and he's a coward. And some of the people in the church at Rome, before they've received this Gospel, guess what? They've been idiots and they've been cowards. But the Gospel has the power to take idiots and cowards and transform them into mighty men of faith, just like it did Peter. So it presents Peter in kind of a negative light. This church knows what a heroic stance he took at the end of his life, but it presents him in a negative light in order to encourage them. This guy messed up too. Your pastor that all of you, you know, have such a high respect for that eventually was put to death for being so courageous, this awesome pastor of yours didn't always look like that. How many times did he deny Jesus? Three right? Um, what happened in the garden, by the way? They come to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? Do you remember? He takes a sword, and what does he do? He cuts off the guy's earlobe. You know, it, whichever way you slice, if the only thing you take off is a guy's earlobe. Like, that's pretty, that's pretty pathetic. What that tells me is that Peter took the sword and closed his eyes and went like that, right? And, you know, wound up nicking the guy's ear a little bit. All right? This guy, um, you know, does that sound like the brave, courageous warrior, by the way? You know, <laughs> you know, uh, probably not, right? Um, this guy, um, you know, is presented in kind of a negative light, but that's meant to encourage the church. They know what a hero he became. And so showing where he started off at is an encouragement to them that there's grace and forgiveness for you if you know, out of fear you've not done what you should have done. If out of fear you didn't stand firm, if out of fear you didn't bear witness to the gospel, don't feel like your time is up and you missed your chance. God is a God of grace and the, and the gospel can transform cowards into, into brave men. So there is an emphasis on Peter. Uh, Peter's failures is really emphasized. And, and then another thing that's going to be emphasized in the gospel of Mark is, um, you know, who is persecuting this church? People from where? What empire? Rome. Uh, one of the really big themes in the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel is for Romans. This is the only Gospel that tells you that right after Jesus died, one of the soldiers that helped crucify him looked at the other soldier and said, you know what, I actually think he was the Son of God. And one of the things that it wants you to do is, okay, these soldiers are maybe coming to your house to arrest you, throw you in jail, whatever. You need to be prayerful for them. You need to bear witness to them because God's gospel is powerful enough to save them too. The Lord loves them too. So instead of being anti-Roman, the gospel of Mark is very surprisingly pro-Roman. You wouldn't expect that. 
but that's what it does. Um, the Gospel of Luke is a little bit harder. Um, Luke addresses his Gospel to something uh, called Theophilus. Um, Theophilus, a lot of people take him to actually be an individual. Uh, the name literally, Theos is God, Philos is love, so this either translates to lover of God or beloved of God. Uh, it's not quite clear whether this means someone who loves God or someone who is loved by God. Both are probably true. Um, but some people interpret Theophilus, uh, I'm going to kind of do this. Uh, we're going to break this into two. Some people uh, interpret Theophilus as an individual. Um, here's a question, or, or, well, let me lead you into something. The book of Luke and the book of Acts are both written to Theophilus, and that makes up 40% of the New Testament. A little bit over that, actually, but not quite 50. Uh, it makes up roughly 40% of the New Testament. Luke and Acts together do. All right? And both of them are addressed to Theophilus. Tell me about books in the ancient world. Dude, they're very rare. Why? Yeah, you have to hand write it instead of printing it. Uh, so it takes a high level of education, but it also takes a lot of paper. Money. money, resources, paper and ink and the little, you know, read thing that you write with. All of these things are pretty expensive. So if Theophilus is just a dude and he wants to know about the life of Jesus and the life of the early church, so he says, Luke, write it down for me. What must Theophilus be? Very rich. Very rich. All right, is he rich maybe? If this is just one dude, is he, is he super, super rich? Um, his name is also in Greek, not in Hebrew. All right, um, you know, Matthew had another name. What was Matthew's other name? Levi. Levi is his Hebrew name. Matthew is his Greek name. Um, Theophilus is a Greek name. He never gets another name. It's just this Greek name. So that tells you that he's probably a Jew or Gentile. Gentile. Probably a Gentile, and if he's a rich Gentile, he's probably a what type of Gentile? Like what specifically? Roman. Probably a Roman. Maybe even an official. Um, Luke uses a lot of kind of law court language to Theophilus in his gospel. Uh, so, so he may be a, an official. He might be an army man. Some people have suggested that he was a captain of the army who just took an interest in Christianity and that Luke is writing his gospel to try to convince Theophilus not to persecute the, the, the early church. I don't find that very persuasive personally, um, but it could be that this is a really rich Roman guy. All right. If that is the case, um, we can see that the gospel of Luke is really tailored to this guy uh, and, and, and some of the needs that maybe he had. Um, how do rich people usually view poor people? Not very much. Usually have a tendency to look down on them. The Gospel of Luke, more than any of the other Gospels, elevates the poor and poverty. Um, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount that you guys read not long ago, uh, Jesus had a statement where he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven luke changes that 
In Luke, it reads, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. More in Luke than in any of the other Gospels, Jesus interacts with poor people, shows them dignity. He does this in the other Gospels as well, but it's just very much emphasized in Luke. It happens more. There's more stories about it included in the Gospel of Luke. All right? Um, Luke has more teachings on money and the dangers of wealth and things like that than Matthew and Mark do. Matthew and Mark have them, but there's more of it in Luke. So is this maybe because it's written to this really rich Roman and Luke is wanting to remind him, you know, you're not better than poor people. Is he trying to remind him, hey, you're wealthy, that's fine, that's great, but remember that there is a snare. Love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Is, is that maybe a purpose here? You guys, does that make sense? Okay. Another thing that happens along these lines is... Um, um, Luke presents us with a lot of surprising examples. Um, I'm going to show you guys this. Hopefully, I, I'll give you an example of this hopefully a little bit later in this class period, but definitely tomorrow if, uh, if we don't get to it today. Um, something that Luke does quite often is um, the apostles, Jesus' 12 disciples, um, will do something and either it will be a bad thing or it will be a decent thing. But then right after that, someone else will come on the scene, some nobody will come on the scene, and whereas the disciples either did something bad or decent, this nobody will do something great. What would that teach? If you're an early Christian living, you know, just after the time of the apostles, just after the time of the disciples, how do you probably think about these guys? How would you be tempted to think about them? Put them up on a pedestal, really exalt and elevate them. And maybe one of the things that Luke does is he kind of brings them down so that you see them just like everyone else. Uh, I'll show you an example of this a little bit later on where um, Peter does something that's pretty decent but in the very next story a leper comes walking up to Jesus and what the leper says makes Peter look pretty bad all right I'll show, I'll show you that here in a little bit either today or tomorrow um, others think that maybe Theophilus was not an individual um, this means either lover of God or loved by God uh, some people think that this is a title that is maybe uh, put on a certain church. Later in the New Testament, the book of, uh, I believe it's 3 John, it might be 2nd, no, uh, hold on, 2nd John. The book of 2nd John is addressed to the chosen lady. All right? It's pretty clear in 2nd John that the chosen lady is not an individual woman. It's a, it's a, it's a, a phrase that refers to a church that John is writing to. All right? So it could be that Theophilus um, is, you know, a, a, a word that Luke uses to write to um, a, a certain church. And um, if that's the case, the church is probably uh, made up of a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. 
And um, the Gospel of Luke, I've told you before, Luke looks like what other Gospels? What, what Gospels look alike? Matthew Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke adds an entire section of Jesus' ministry that Matthew and Mark don't have. I'll talk about that probably tomorrow, all right? Um, he adds an entire section of Jesus' ministry that the others don't have, where it's Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. He, he leaves a place called Caesarea Philippi and starts going to Jerusalem. And Luke includes tons of stories, tons of parables, tons of teachings that Jesus gives from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem that Matthew and Mark don't have. And almost all of those stories that are unique to, um, to the Gospel of Luke uh, deal with the with the Jew Gentile problem, and so again, uh, this one is probably trying to promote unity in the church uh, in, in that way. All right, um, and so it's it's addressing this Jew Gentile problem again. We'll talk about that again uh, probably tomorrow uh, in in a little bit more detail. Uh, let's not talk about John right now. Um, all that you should know uh, is that something that I've already told you. Uh, does John really look like these other three Gospels? Not really. No. Uh, over half of the Gospel of John uh, centers on the last week of Jesus' life. So is it really a synoptic Gospel? Is it really an overview of Jesus' life the way that these are? No. Not really, right? Um, and so the Gospel of John, uh, I told you, if you kind of think about the other three Gospels doing this, John kind of comes in and fills in gaps. And again, that, I'm going to explain what that means uh, a little bit more probably tomorrow. Okay, so let's just kind of leave that there. Uh, John can be blank for right now. Just know uh, the only thing that you really need to know for the test uh, for, for John is that uh, it does not look like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So if I asked you a question and I said, is it true that the Gospel of Mark gets all of its information from the Gospel of John, you would say what? No. Uh, if I said, John looks exactly like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would say? No. no. Okay. Then you guys will be good. That's all you really need right there. Um, at least that's all you need about, about John. Okay. <laughs> that's the only question. <laughs> that is the only question on the entire test. No, it's not. Um, let's talk about, we, I, I, I got ahead of myself last week. I introduced you to a phrase and then realized um, we weren't ready to talk about it yet. But let's talk about something now. Yes, yeah. Uh, called the synoptic problem. Do you get stressed out whenever we're talking about the Bible and then I use that P word? Problem. Right. Um, I would I would put it like this: synoptic and then scare quotes problem. Um, it's not. It's not really a problem for us. It's just something that we need to recognize and notice. And, and the synoptic problem is this. Uh, what are my three synoptic gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke. All right, so whenever we talk about the synoptic problem, know that we're talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the synoptic problem basically says Matthew, Mark, and Luke look alike. But they are not identical. Whenever we say that they look alike, um, whenever we say that they look alike, 
and you maybe ask yourself, what does that really mean? It means this, at times, they are word for word identical. What does that probably tell you, by the way? Yeah, maybe um, whenever one of them, like let's say whenever Luke is writing, what might he have in front of him? One of the other gospels. One of the other two. Um, you know, it, it could be something like that. But then let's say that, that Luke is writing his gospel and he has Mark sitting right in front of him. And so at times he's copying word for word from Mark. But all of the stories are in a different order, and sometimes he leaves stuff out, and sometimes he adds new stuff. That's a little odd, right? So, so the synoptic problem says Matthew, Mark, and Luke look alike to the point where they're word-for-word word identical, but they're not identical. The Gospels all are distinct in some way. Um, they have different orders. Uh, include or exclude different stories. All right, so they, they have different orders. They include, or actually, I, I put it include and exclude together, so we'll just put it here. All right, they, they have different orders and they include and exclude different stories. And so the synoptic problem is basically asking the question, why does this happen? All right, um, if you just read the, the Gospel of Matthew um, and you get into it and you're reading, okay, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, then he heals a leper, then he heals nine other people, and then he gives another sermon, and then he has this thing where he heals someone on the Sabbath and then preaches another sermon, you would kind of assume, probably, that all those stories are told in what? In order. Then you flip to Mark, and boy, Mark looks different. Because all of a sudden, the healing of the leper is one of the very first things that Jesus does in his ministry. But, but then, like, some of that other stuff is all out of order. Okay? So, then you get to Luke, and Luke actually has him healing the leper before he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. So, I mean, think about that. In Matthew, you have Sermon on the Mount, then him healing the leper. In Luke, that order is totally reversed. Alright, so if you're trying to ask the question, how does all this stuff fit together, what does it look like the three Gospels are doing? At least at first glance, what does it look like they're doing? Looks like they're contradicting. Alright, um, so the synoptic problem is basically asking that question. Um, is there a contradiction? Are they going against each other? And I would answer this question, probably unsurprisingly, no. I don't think they are. Let me give you an illustration quickly. Um, if I came to Josh at the end of the day, and I said, Josh, did you have a good day? And he says, yes, I did. And I said, tell me about your day. Josh might say, well, in first period, I did this. And in second period, I did this. And in third period, I did this. And in fourth period, I did this. And, and so on and so forth. 
And I said, great, Josh, I'm glad you had a good day and you know, enjoyed it. Sophia, did you have a good day? Yes, tell me about it. Well, in third period, I got to hang out with my best friend, and then I also hang out, hung out with that person in sixth and seventh period, and that was super fun. And then in first period, there was a different friend I got to hang out with, and I also hung out with that person at break, okay? Is she telling me about her day in order? No. Is she telling me incorrect information? No. How is she arranging her information? Well, I have this one friend that I hung out with, so I'm gonna tell Mr. Graven about that, and then I had this other friend I hung out with, so now I'm gonna tell Mr. Graven about that. And then I had this third friend I hung out with, so then I'll tell Mr. Graven about that. She's kind of organizing it by topic. You know, I hung out with, 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 with Izzy, and then with Bella, and then with Lily, and it's organized by topic. You see that? Is there anything wrong with doing it that way? No, it's telling you true information is just not giving it in strict chronological order, all right? I would make the argument that Matthew is largely chronological. That Mark, not really. It's highly topical. And that Luke goes back and forth a good deal. And once you recognize that, I, I think that a lot of this like synoptic problem thing starts to disappear. Um, Matthew really likes words like immediately after this. Or the very next day. You see how those words, like those transitions, are very precise. It's telling you exactly when the next event occurred. You see that? Luke likes to do things like on a Sabbath. Do you see how that's more general? All right. Um, uh, Matthew would tell you the very next Sabbath. Luke is just going to say, on a Sabbath, this happened. Do you guys want an example of this? Would that help? Sure. Someone open to Matthew 4. Well, actually, everybody open to Matthew 4. Matthew 4 is the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. Um... What order do the temptations go in according to Matthew? Yeah, bread testing worship. Uh, turn these, these stones into bread. Uh, throw yourself down from the temple and God will catch you. Worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Um, look at the words that Matthew uses to describe the order of the temptations. All right. Um, in verse five, the first temptation ends and Matthew says, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. All right. Jesus responds to that temptation. All right. And then in verse 8, the third one starts up and it says, and again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. All right. 
So the first one happens, and then this one happens, and then this one happens. Matthew is really trying to present a strict order to you. Luke doesn't. Luke presents it in a different order. Uh, in Luke chapter, I think it's chapter 3 of Luke. My Bible's actually not telling me for sure. Is it Luke 3 that has the temptations? No, it's Luke 4. Okay. Um, notice how it goes in Luke, all right? Um, in verse 9, you're transitioning from the first to the second one. And all that Luke says is, and he said to him, right? Um, in, in this one, it's and, in Luke, instead of being then, then, it's and, and. You know, if I was, if, I, if you compare these words, which one is more exact? Then. then, right? It's telling you this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Whereas here it's just saying, yeah, this one thing happened, and another thing happened, and a third thing happened. Right? This is a really good illustration of how Matthew and Luke use time indicators. Right? Yes. Does Luke do the bread and then worship and then the testing? Bread, worship, yeah, bread, worship, testing. So he switches these orders. So which one is it? You know, uh, Matthew says it's bread, testing, worship, and, and Luke says it's bread, uh, worship, testing. Which one is it? Are they contradicting which order it went in? Well, no. Which one is trying to tell you exactly which order they happened in? Matthew. Matthew very clearly is. Is Luke. He's no. just saying this one happened and this and, and this one happened and this one happened and this one happened. Right? It's all there. Yeah, it's all there, but notice that the, the wording is much more general here. Luke is not claiming this is the exact order it happened in. Matthew is. Matthew is claiming this is the exact order it happened in. All right. So just paying kind of close attention to some of that stuff, uh, you know, covers over a multitude of confusion. Um, but let me show you something else with this synoptic problem that I think is really helpful. Um, we put this chart up on the board a second ago and made the point that all of these gospel writers are writing to different communities that have different needs. And I'm going to use one story from the gospels and show you how Matthew meets a need, Mark meets a need, and Luke meets a need. Same story, three different meanings for the three Gospels. Okay? Uh, I'm going to use my favorite story in the entire Bible. You guys know what it is? I've told you before. Anybody know? It's the story of Jesus. It's not the fish one. The fish one's funny, <laughs> right? But no, it's not the fish one. No, it's the healing of the leper, which, oh, you know, if you... Huh? When he on him, no, whenever he, uh, the leper comes to him and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean, and then he touches him and heals him. Yeah, I, I usually talk about that like three times throughout a semester in either Old or New Testament class, because I wrote a very long paper on it, which got published. So you can read it at some point. Um, but we'll also go over it in a few days, so it would be a little bit redundant because I'm just going to tell you all the things in the paper. So um, <laughs> let's see. We get out of here at 55, don't we? Yes. Drats. Okay. We'll get started. Do we have time to get started? <sighs> all right. Let's do just this part, and then we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more. We're probably not going to get to that test 
until Thursday. So plan on the test being Thursday. That sound good? A couple extra days. Plan on the test being Thursday. And if we finish up a little bit early on Wednesday, that's just a little bit of time to review. Um, we're going to be talking about the healing of the leper. And we're going to be talking about why the synoptic problem is not a problem. Um, each of the three Gospels is going to use the story of Jesus healing the leper in a unique way to make a unique point for the unique community that, that has unique needs. That's a lot of uniques, isn't it? All right. The story of the leper in Matthew is in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. In the Gospel of Mark, it is in chapter 1, verses... Uh, I'll have to look. should probably have that memorized at this point. Verses 40 through 45. In the Gospel of Luke... It is in chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Okay. Tomorrow we're going to have to take a little bit of time and talk about the context and talk about how it is paired with very different stories in each of the three Gospels, and it is making a very unique point in each of the three Gospels. All right? Uh, Matthew has a point that is different from Mark's point and from Luke's point and so on. So we'll get to that tomorrow and we'll finish up the synoptic problem tomorrow. Your reading tonight, again, is uh, chapters 21 and 22. Uh, what's the reference for your memory verse? Matthew 6.33.